Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Rabona Podcast. Once again, I'm Musa Konga, joined by Ryan Hun and Michael De Silva. We're here to discuss all kinds of things, but first of all, we have to discuss the return of the king, Zinedine Zidane, back at the Santiago Bernabeu. My goodness. Gentlemen, <laughs> let's dive in. Oh dear. What to say? <laughs> give it Zuzu to the end of the season. <laughs> Never go back. Never go back. I disagree. I think this is it's, incredible. It's just such a different challenge, though. That he's got now the things that he wanted when when he left, basically. I think that's why he's gone back. This is five-dimensional chess from Zidane. <laughs> look, okay, look, let me break it down. Real Madrid burned through managers like fossil fuels, right? This yeah. is wild. But Zidane, he's a renewable. Get this. Three oh, wow. straight Champions Leagues, okay? Messi is ageing, okay? So when Messi is gone... The entire game changes, the calculus changes, because Barcelona become human again. And we've already seen that Barca are a bit over-dependent on Messi, there's transition going on there. Now Zidane gets to work with a completely new dressing room, potentially. Ramos is ageing, less influential, but still, you know, in, he's still like Zidane's general. The this thing, is a really exciting opportunity for Zidane, I think. I, I agree it's exciting. The thing that worries me a bit is that his last role at Real Madrid was to just tweak a side that was already very, very good. Right. Maybe that's perhaps underplaying his achievements a bit, but it wasn't a major, major surgery, major operation that was needed on that, that Real Madrid team. It is now. And those people that questioned how good Zidane is as a coach, even despite winning three Champions Leagues, I think it's going to become clear exactly what he has in his locker. I think he's an Ancelotti. I think he's a very good club coach who is one step short of an elite league coach, but who is an elite tournament coach. Because if you think about the course of a 40 game season, the types of adjustments you need to make week in, week out, he gets caught out. Same as Ancelotti. Ancelotti won the double at Chelsea, of course, but fundamentally, if you look at Ancelotti's entire career. He's won a few fewer leagues than he should have done. But Ancelotti in a tournament competition is as good as anyone. And that's the thing with Zidane. 
if he hangs around in Madrid for the next five, six seasons, you can see him picking up a couple of Champions Leagues just because he's so good in that format. And that will be enough for a lot of Madrid fans, I think. I don't even think they need to win or challenge for a Champions League for him to be successful. I think that if he comes back now, overhauls... Because this is the problem that Real Madrid have got. And that's the reason he got out in the first place was because he wasn't assured that things were going to change this season when he knew they wanted to change. It's one of the things he said in the press conference. He said things have to change. Yeah. And you've seen what's happened with Madrid this season. They've gone through two managers already. They've asked him to come back, which, I mean, Perez must have, you know, been desperate for for that to happen so Zidane is calling all the shots now he it's could wild, completely it? overhaul it in the way that he wants to overhaul it and that's right and I think actually it's funny because Zidane going back to Madrid he almost has a free hit for the next year and a half two years you know when you win three straight Champions Leagues no one's ever done no one retained it before and we have to look at that context he is someone who Madrid fans absolutely adored and this is without being dominant in the league because ultimately that trophy, the Champions League, is what matters to them. If he wins one more, I mean, if, if he never wins it again, he's still a legend for them. And I think now, and we, we talk about rebuilding, I mean, not being funny, but he has the pick of the world's players. Being the sporting director of Real Madrid, it's not like being the sporting director of, with all respect, actually I'm not going to name a club because I'll get offended, but there are certain clubs where you have to recruit hard. He just has to make a few phone calls. Mm. Yeah, but it's about choosing the right players. And this is what we haven't seen from him before. You say that, but Varane, he just called up Varane and that was it. Like, mm. that's the thing. And everyone wanted Varane. Like, and the problem is, though, he needs, he needs a striker. Mm. He needs potentially a midfielder to replace Kroos. And Modric, maybe. Yeah. The thing is, though, if you identify, how hard is it to identify the best midfielders? He has one on the bench in Isco, yeah. by the way. Yeah, yeah. and they've got Kovac. Kovac yeah. is going to come back at the end of the season. I yeah. think that's a killer move um, for Kovac coming back. Hazard, maybe. It's like you said, players don't need to be sold too much on Real Madrid. Mm. And they definitely don't need to be sold too much on playing for Zinedine Zidane. So it's a different set of goals now for Zidane. You know, when he came in, they just won the, the decimal. And he comes in and wins, you know, three more. Now they've seen not chaos and not complete and utter failure, but they've not been a happy place this season. It's What's been... that Eminem song? It feels so empty without me. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> they've needed an overhaul and a restructuring or kind of a new identity or whatever for a, for a while. And now if he can kind of set them up in, in a different way, you know, it's kind of he's won twice then. It also feels really empty at the Bernabeu without Ronaldo. And... I think this is an interesting moment to a litmus test to see whether it's Zidane or Ronaldo who they miss most. Mm. I mean, the thing about Real Madrid is that they've got a really good crop of youngsters there. I think they finished the Clasico last week with more academy graduates on the pitch than Barcelona did. And they've got Brian Diaz just signed as well, who's young, coming through. They've got a lot of young players. And I think maybe getting rid of the a few of the older superstars and and kind of setting up a team more in the mould of what Zidane wants to do. This will be interesting. You've seen Zidane the winner. Now can you see Zidane like the philosopher, if you like? And that's yeah. a bit cheesy, but... No, but that's right. It's... I think what's funny is, can I just say this as well? What's the end game for Zidane? I'm thinking, does this guy want to be president or something? Like, if you <laughs> see him moving through the gears, like, what is Zidane's end game? <laughs> because here's the thing. When Zidane left, this is what makes it quite hilarious to me on a social level in terms of like... The amount of conversations Perez had 
at dinner parties where everyone's like, Madrid aren't the same. Madrid is obviously Perez's plaything. He's very proud of it. Mm. Zidane leaves and the luster disappears from Madrid. <laughs> and how many people have been in this guy's ear? How many nephews, nieces have come up to him? Uncle, it's not the same without that guy. And he's like, his ear has been chewed off by everyone in his social circle. That's what makes this hilarious on a purely social level. Like he had to get Zidane back. Mm. It's like the master chef at the restaurant. Like everyone's like, it's not the same without this dude. It's been weird this season for uh, clubs reappointing managers that have either left or been fired you know mm. like monaco reappointed jardim right kaya went back to Villarreal like 60 days after being fired mm. and now zidane coming back i mean it's it's a rare thing to happen so quickly like within a year mm. or less but to have three happen in a, in a season is no. really weird great observation actually yeah return yeah. of the kings we can call it <laughs> the future of gareth bell looks a little bleak i think now oh my yeah. goodness when he scored that amazing overhead kick in the champions league final that was his calling card like play me or I'll go. Mm. Then Zidane goes and it's like... And Bale gets played. Yeah. But he has a poor season, you know, Very by his poor, standards. Yeah. So now Zidane's back, I, I can't see it ending well for Bale at, at Real Madrid. I mean, there's been murmurings that he's, you know, he's on his way out. He has never really settled culturally in the city. So yeah, it's interesting to see whether he brings back James Rodriguez even. I mean... Oh my God, James doesn't want that problem. Oh my God, either. I forgot about James yeah, Rodriguez. There's, there's options, you know. Uh, we got a good tweet from King Mufasa saying, uh, Daniel Levy is the winner in all this. The only jobs Poch would have like left yeah. Spurs for were Real Madrid and United and they've both now been filled. It's true. Well, Man United, not quite, but you would expect so. I mean, just give Pochettino some money and go, just let him spend some money. You know, like everyone else has got some toys to play with. Yeah. Give the man, you know, give the man a fish. I do think that there's a greater chance of failure this time around for Zidane. Of course. Yeah, definitely. And there's always traps when you're a Real Madrid coach, but I, I almost wouldn't be surprised to see the crisis extend a little bit into the Zidane era. I mean, it's not saying it's going to happen, but there's pitfalls there now. Do you know, can I, prediction? Go on. Zidane rebuilds, two years, comes third in the league, then second, doesn't win the league, wins a Champions League, <laughs> quits dramatically, yeah. and then puts together a consortium of backers, <laughs> triggers a presidential election, <laughs> beats Perez, Zinedine Zidane, Real Madrid president within five years. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's the end game. I think. I think, it's, uh, I think it's five-dimensional chess. I, I look at Zidane now like Thanos. I'm like, you're operating on a different... That, you know what? Zidane's been away. He's been collecting Infinity Stones. This is it. This is his move. Oh He's made his... Zidane has made his move. I'm, I'm only half-joking, only because what other logical move could he have long-term other than something more senior, maybe a board of directors, not necessarily president, but if you look how Zidane has worked his way through the club administration in a way that none of us thought possible, youth team coach from being a player... And now he's a manager, like legendary power broker. Like, where does it end for him? French job. I don't know. I think he loves Madrid too much. Yeah, maybe. I he's... think he just loves Madrid so much. He genuinely, if anything can't be doubted, he genuinely loves that club. He'll end up at Leganes. He's <laughs> 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 down the road. Can you imagine the Real Madrid dressing room when he turns up again? They did this too late, though. They did this. They should have done this. Ten days ago, Aren't right? They... Can you imagine going into the Ajax game at home? If Zidane, it was Zidane's first game back in charge, or the first Clasico. Yeah, can you imagine? Yeah, exactly. Basically, getting rid of Solari before the Ajax tie, that's a game changer because at that point, Madrid would have been dangerous deep into the Champions League. Because with that, I mean, with with that squad, they could have been good for one last hurrah. I reckon mm. with that squad, galvanized, Vinicius there, and the kind of Zidane bounce he would have given them. You're completely right. They must just be thinking, why don't we do this sooner? And this, and this is actually something I don't really understand about managerial appointments is that you hear um, 
you know, you see like, oh, they've got so-and-so games to save their job or whatever. It's like if things have gone that bad that you're thinking about firing a manager, just fire them. And I, I, I mean, I, no, you know, we don't really like seeing managers out of jobs and blah, blah, blah. But if you're thinking of firing someone before two Classicos and a Champions League knockout tie, and then you actually lose all those games and then fire the guy, what's the point? Well, here's the dirty secret. Chelsea have never actually got it wrong. Chelsea have sacked all these managers, but in any of the cases, can you say, oh my goodness, Chelsea sacked them too early? You can't. They got that all right. Like Di Matteo. Pardon, sorry? Di Matteo. <laughs> he was the only one. <laughs> and Ancelotti, though. Yeah. They fired him too soon. They did fire oh, him too bit, soon. That was a bit brutal. Yeah. After the double, wasn't it? Every time Hiddink's been there. <laughs> Hiddink's amazing. <laughs> Hiddink is the one person. What I love about Hiddink is he knows exactly when to go. I think because he got burned. I think he got burned at Madrid, didn't he? He got sacked there. Mm. Well, who didn't? He's been burned everywhere, hasn't he? Haven't you been sacked at Madrid? We've all been sacked at Madrid. <laughs> yeah, probably. All of us. Yeah. Um, so where do you think they're going to finish the season then? Fifth. Third. <laughs> <laughs> can you imagine if they finish fifth and they miss out on their Champions League? And can you imagine Getafe going, only one team in Madrid? Oh, no. Can you imagine Getafe? <laughs> oh. oh, wow. Alaves um, and Getafe taking the final two Champions League spots and Real coming fifth. Do you know what? We're completely kind of impartial on this podcast. We are impartial. I would love to see that. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I, would love oh, to see I would absolutely love it. Just for the lols. I'm just interested in what this does in terms of the relationship with Barca because like I say aging Messi and after Messi goes La Liga is up for grabs again he's saying that the uh, Classico is changing well I'm only following in the footsteps a fantastic piece written on the Rebond <laughs> website by um, Ryan something I don't know very good article about the Classico I got that up just in time before Zizou came back and ruined it all for me <laughs> yeah that's true so looking at the table here Real Madrid 12 points off Barca Five off Atletico. If Atletico go on the long run in the Champions League, which they could easily do, mm. I mean, second place is 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 within them. They're not going to win the league. But, no, I don't think so. But Champions League, though, oof. oof. If Thomas Lamar takes off. I would not want to play Atleti in the Champions League. Nobody wants that problem. And they might be out this week, though. You never know. This you never true. know. This is true. Uh, should we take a break and then talk about Arsenal Man United? Yep. Sorry, mate. The less dramatic stuff. No, it's okay. Let's do it. Back from the break, Arsenal Manchester United. The Musa Ryan Derby. We did not watch it together this time. <laughs> I learnt my lesson after the FA Cup game when I invited Musa round to watch it and Arsenal were subsequently quite well beaten. <laughs> but the tables have turned. But I think this was a a good result for Arsenal, obviously, and a fair result. Manchester United punished for their lack of efficiency. Some very strong performances from surprising players. So Chaka scored a fine goal. Um, Fred was very good for United in midfield, conceded a late penalty, but actually for the bulk of the game is pretty good. Yeah. Lukaku again disappointed with his finishing in big matches. The question mark remains over him, I think, in terms of consistency at that level. I mean, mm. I know he scored twice against PSG, but that is Lukaku. He will, you know, he'll, he'll create euphoria, but then frustration from game to game um, at the moment, which is where he is. He was quite unlucky, though, I think. Um, yeah, yeah. Burton Leno yeah. made two unbelievable saves. We have to. Uh, this yeah, thing. United didn't play badly, though. No, I no, thought, not I thought at all they were not. better no. than they, I thought they were better against Arsenal than they were against PSG. Well, it was a. It was, just it was a, a different game, but was, I think yeah, they, they were much a, more proactive. Yeah, they they were. I think th- they beat PSG in the only way they could have beaten PSG. Yeah, for sure. Um, and yeah, they have every 
they have more more license to to attack United. But yeah, I thought I thought Fred, you mentioned him there. I thought he's starting to fill his boots a bit. There was a stat, I think, with Statzone stat about how he had twelve ball recoveries, which was more than anyone else on either team. Mm. He's quite unusual, like from a physical perspective. He's to play in that position and you're going toe to toe with some really dominating central midfielders, you would think that he'd get brushed off the ball really easily. But he's got this like really low centre of gravity, can right. just turn like I I haven't seen a United player for a while that can turn so quickly. Um he adds some dynamite, d- dynamism, some some bite as well. Absolutely, I like him. I like, I like that partnership of Fred and Pogba, though. I think we spoke about it after the Wolves game when Man United played Wolves at home. How they looked really good together, mm. although they drew the game. I think it was a draw, wasn't it? One one, right? Yeah. But um, how we would like to see a little bit more of that partnership, and it's been sparingly used. But every time they have played, I mean, I might be getting a, a few things wrong, but I seem to be quite impre- impressed with how them two. Bit, bit of a hot take here. McTominay actually could be considered to be a bit unlucky not to have played. And if he had played against Arsenal, could have provided the extra mobility that you need against a midfield like Arsenal's, which base just runs you off the field. Mm. There were moments where Arsenal would break against United. It was almost like a 4-2-4. You know, when they were pouring forward Aubameyang, Lacazette, Ramsey and Ozil, and they broke as a kind of very narrow front four but incredibly fast and yeah. vertical. And we were just overwhelmed at certain points. I, thought, I, th- sorry, I, I was just going to say, I think it was a lesson also to Solskjaer. I mean, it was his first league defeat at United. I think United would have got a better result if they had taken the PSG approach of sitting that a little bit deeper, having McTominay in there to, to make life difficult for Ozil. And I think they, in, to some extent, played that, his tactics played into Arsenal's hands. Well, we normally go to the Emirates and play on the counter. And we, we play well when we do that. Yeah. And it was funny because I commented on Twitter a few weeks ago when United played against Liverpool, McTominay started. And I said, actually, that's a blessing in disguise tactically because Liverpool will run all over you in midfield. Though Matic is a fine player, you can run all over him. And that's exactly what Arsenal did. That midfield was porous. Mm. And it's happened in a lot of big games United have played happened against City in the first half of the 3-2 win over them at the um, Etihad. Mm. They were just they just blew us away mm. because they've got the legs. And it sounds very basic, but I think Solskjaer will realise very quickly that you have to field three players that can basically run, especially when one of them, you know, as Pogba did, Pogba was subpar. I think McTominay was unlucky to, to miss out, like you say, but also I think Man United really missed him. Because the oh, thing yeah. was that even yeah. though Arsenal's midfield was very much on the front foot, it's rare that Emery has started a game with... Ramsey, Ozil, Aubameyang and Lacazette. Mm. But I think Arsenal were unbeaten whenever those four started games together. The problem was though that when Man United won the ball back Ramsey is naturally a little bit higher and actually United did find routes through Arsenal midfield if you had McTominay in there who is a little bit more dynamic and better with the ball I think than Matic. I think United caused Arsenal a few problems anyway mm. and yeah, I, think that, I think the thing that let him down was maybe a couple of couple of passes and stuff like that and I think McTominay would have probably done a little bit more damage in there. So I thought I think, it was weird that Martial came on so late as well to be honest. Yeah. I thought Kolasinac was impressive again and he's a guy who I've I've watched and sometimes thought he's really good and sometimes he's just been poor. Maybe he's been exposed on the left-hand side a bit but yeah he was dynamic, he was strong, he was spotting passes, he was delivering well from the left. I thought he was arguably Arsenal's best player. But also I think people forget that this is a guy who was in the Bundesliga team of the year a few couple of seasons ago mm. and has played left midfield, left back, left wing back, 
you know, he's even played centre midfield a couple of times for Schalke. He's and, a decent player. And since he left, let's not forget where Schalke are. Schalke, I mean, yeah. Goretzka is also part of that reason. But yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, he's a he's an accomplished dude. Yeah. But I thought he really put in a shift on the weekend, and actually, he rang so hard he, he threw up. Well, can I say this as well? I, I didn't see that. I'm, I'm, I'm loving the sudden <laughs> revelation, revelation, sorry, that, oh, wow, players in the Bundesliga are actually good. Yeah. Like Granite Chaka. Oh, Chaka's found form. He's just a good footballer being played in his preferred position. Yeah, I mean, he's still, but he, I mean, he has his moments, you know, as is usually the case now with modern fandom in a way. It's like someone's a goat one week and then a fraud modern the fandom, next week. Of which more later. So yeah, yeah, yeah. That. But it's just not the case. It's, it's that I don't think Jacko has ever been as, as bad as people have really given him criticism for, but you know, just he's a good he's, player. Yeah. I mean, I think he, he, he still has, I mean, you actually saw evidence of it on the weekend. He still has some trouble getting caught on the ball in difficult situations. There was one where, I think, was it just after Lukaku hit the bar or something and Arsenal couldn't clear it and Jacker got, he got the ball nicked off him on the edge of the box. So that still happens. But he's just, I mean, you really, Arsenal really miss him when he's not there, put it that way. So mm. that's a sign of a good player. And a player that I thought you would miss is Torreira. He's been so important to Arsenal. I thought they would struggle in that area, but seemed to get by without him. Yeah, although since Christmas, he's not been as great. I think he's looked a little bit leggy. Right. Maybe a few of these suspensions might be doing him a bit of good, actually, having a bit of time out. <laughs> What was really impressive about Arsenal was, you know, Lacazette and Aubameyang. It was a really great understanding, even down to the penalty and um, Aubameyang getting to take it um, instead of Lacazette. And I love stuff like that. I think it's, it's really great to see Arsenal pouring forward with such conviction. And you look at that league table, and to be honest, I think to myself, this shows what a terrible start United actually had. Mm. The fact that, like, they've had this great surge of form. They're still fighting for fourth <laughs> play. It's still tough. Well, the thing is, the top six is no joke this season. No, yeah, no. and the very fact that United are, are back in it, and the very fact that Spurs have slipped back into that fight as well, mm. I think it's it's anyone's. And it's yeah. momentum as well that's important. Chelsea definitely don't have it. Um, Spurs don't have it. Watching the game, it never felt like one goal was going to be enough for Arsenal. And I thought the penalty wasn't a penalty, actually, at all. Um, I could see why it was given in real time but I didn't think in real time it was a penalty and I definitely didn't think it was a penalty on a replay yeah I, d I don't think it was a penalty but I think Arsenal were deserving winners yeah but also I, I think if, you, if, it, if that game goes into the last 15 minutes 1-0 and Arsenal were by no means solid at the back I mean they kept a clean sheet but that was down to another unbelievable save from Leno um, in the first half and uh, second half sorry you know United could have easily got a point you know even scraped a win yesterday. And let me throw this in the last thing I'll say on the Arsenal United game Thank God, actually, from one perspective, they won that game because the stuff I see about Emery on social media, it just turns me off, to be honest. Like, people forget, because he's had so many good results coming in the door, they forget how difficult it is to manage transition. I mm. say that as a United fan, like, you look how badly transition was managed by us, okay? Emery has come in, and the fact that things we're critiquing about him are relatively minor, you know, lack of identity or maybe consistency, not knowing his best team. The things we're criticising are so minor. When, when, when United had a new manager, we went to this kind of weird semi-existential crisis, which yeah. it wasn't, but you know. Well, I mean, there's been points this season where it's not been fun to watch and there's been points this season where it's been hard to figure out what, what Arsenal are actually trying to do. But I think that when you have a manager come in or a head coach or whatever, who is so different in terms of approach to the previous coach, it's going to take a while for players to be, to be able to play three different systems in three different games with three right. different lots of personnel. That starting 11 in that formation was a massive surprise for, for me and mm. I think would have surprised Solskjaer and United as well. So I think it takes time for players to, to learn all these systems and be able to switch 
between them game by game. Do you see progress? Yeah, 100%. Arsenal have already almost hit their points tally for last season and there's still eight games left. Mm. The great thing about Arsenal, I would say, this year is that they've shown so much, the players have shown so much tactical flexibility under Emery that when next season Pochettino takes over Arsenal, they're going to be wonderful. Um, (laughs) Oh my God. And that's going to be fantastic. If you want to hate that comment from me is at a Kwonga. yeah you can't say stuff like that now michael's back when he's indisposed we can get away with it but uh, if you, know, you tweet em- at rabona i will personally retweet it well that's not the rabona twitter account so you could tweet at rabona all you like <laughs> um, but um yeah last thing on emery i think that um i think that he's really shown what is possible with quite a limited group of players actually i think yeah. that the, the technical level of this arsenal core 15 isn't incredible is it- so where do you think they need to strengthen? Um, I think they undoubtedly need another right back. You've seen how much Hector Bellerin, how, how important he is to this team. Although I would say that yesterday, I actually think that second half from Ainsley Maitland-Niles was probably his best at right back. And he's not a right back, he's a centre midfielder, but I thought he really struggled in the first half. I thought he was brilliant in the second half. I think they undoubtedly need another left back. Mm. They need another centre back, maybe so, but, two. But, but you're talking about cover here rather than first choice. I think they need a first choice centre back. Okay. I think they need ideally maybe another first choice or someone who's going to compete for a first-choice left-back position. Mm. And they're going to have to try and find someone to replace Ramsey because I don't think Smith-Rowe is the guy yet. Mm-hmm. And um, I think, you know, he was, I thought Ramsey was probably man of the match yesterday, actually. I think he was, I think he made more tackles than any other Arsenal player has all season mm-hmm. in one game. Brilliant. And a shout for Mesut Ozil as well, actually, because he gets a lot of stick in quote-unquote big games. And I thought during the game, I thought he was decent, but I thought he was kind of quiet. So I... Check stat zone after the game, as we know, best way to win an argument. That should be the tagline for that thing. <laughs> stat zone, the best way to win an argument. But he ended with something like 91% pass completion, 18 out of 21 attacking third passes. That's and created wild. four chances. That's like his World Cup 2014 but stats. He, but he basically only Pogba made as many attacking third passes, but Urza went off 20 minutes to go. Mm. And also, he's created more chances than any Arsenal player this season whilst missing something like a third of the games. But do you see a difference in him since his hiatus in the team? This is a guy who's 30. He's won a World Cup. He's been there and done it. I mean, is he going to change his game to suit Emery? I mean, we all know he's world class. Yeah, I think he's going to have to. Apparently, one thing that was coming out a lot was that how hard he was working when he was out of the side harder than he's ever worked and he was undoubtedly the teacher's pet under Wenger Mm. and I don't think he ever felt like he had to work that hard I think now he's realised he has and I think he really wants to stay at Arsenal Mm. and in that sense he's going to have to work hard to to prove that he can adapt in certain scenarios yeah it's going to be an interesting summer yeah Um, definitely All right, let's take a quick break and then get back into it So obviously that's the on-field action, but off the field, um, events took a somewhat more grim turn. Or kind um, of on the field as yeah, well, right? Yeah, true, true. So, okay, we're talking specifically about uh, two or three things happened the weekend. So against Rangers, um, a Hibs fan came on and gave a bit of abuse to one of the players. Then we had, uh, obviously, Jack Grealish in the Birmingham Derby mm. uh, when he got attacked from behind by a, play, by, by a fan. And the scary thing about the, the Grealish punch was that like he can't see the guy; he's completely yeah. blindsided, and the guy could have been carrying anything. Yeah. Yeah. And he hits him hard enough to knock him over. Like right. it's a, yeah. it's he runs up with real momentum and catches him flush. You know what it reminded me of the Monica Sellis incident, exactly. Nineteen ninety three, yeah. 
she's taking a drinks break and a guy just blindsides her you know was it, it, was, it, was, it, it was it was yeah. it was here in germany and yeah like it took her years to Completely well i mean she, she she yeah i mean she never recovered um fully as a player but psychologically i mean i don't think she really even spoke about it until she released her autobiography like 15 years later and she was so dominant at that point wasn't she she mm. was so far ahead the only thing that could exactly. have stopped her would have been that yeah and also it could, you know, not that this particular uh, moron is going to really consider it or care, but if something like that happened to Grealish, then could be mentally at least career over. Can I say two quick things about this? So we always fall into this trap of, well, not, not us, but people fall into this trap of, oh my goodness, well, it's just a tiny minority. Like it's just that guy. No, the guy was cheered off the pitch, right? Mm. That is a systemic problem. Yeah. That man was empowered to do that and before all, and yeah. after. Yeah. And so were other people, right? That was just seen as another form of tribal violence. And the thing that scares me is because Grealish scored the winner, people can go, oh, that's how you stick two fingers up. No, look, if we're starting to evaluate acts like this, mm. you know, systemic acts of violence, right? Because I say systemic because that man was egged on, right, before and after by that crowd, mm. right? Let's not get away from that. He wasn't just some isolated loser. It wasn't like he was booed. He was, he was like a hero, right? He was mm -hmm. greeted like a hero, like a, some kind of weird footballing martyr. If we go, oh, well, Grealish scored this winner, that's how he defeated. No, that's the same attitude we have with racism in football. Yeah. Yeah. Or just get up and score goals. What you're then doing is you're saying, prove your humanity through sporting excellence, which is a dangerous trap. It's actually part of the problem. Yeah. The other thing I want to say as well is, this to me was almost like football Twitter, tribalism, spilling out onto the pitch. Oh, Social media, chat, not just football, not just Twitter, but like all those chat rooms, all that weird tribal behavior. Mm. Yeah. And like, here's the, can I say this now? Like, I'm not here for any of that. Like I played amateur football, not to a high level, but if someone beats you, shake hands, good game. I said it on Twitter, like well played Arsenal and you mm. get on with it yeah. and you'll get a bit of banter, a bit of stick, but it doesn't become tribal. And what I've noticed in the last few years, this weird thing about, oh, we can't enjoy them because they play for that team. And it's only a minor part of it, but I think it's a, a small manifestation of a big problem, which is like anyone who's from that part of town or identifies with that is some existential threat and we have to cleanse it. And I have a real issue with that. Well, this is the thing, because you're essentially the same. It's just that the club that you're worshipping is a different football club. Now, obviously, some football clubs are like, have really, really admirable values. So some people identify with those, you know, for example, if you're like a St. Pauli fan or if you're an Union Berlin fan or something like that. However, th th I think the thing that you said about football Twitter, it was like football Twitter going onto the pitch. That was 100% on point, I think, because you saw afterwards there was a guy who tweeted, a Birmingham City fan who was tweeting about Jack Grealish's dead brother. So Jack Grealish had a, son, a, a brother who died when he was one and he was basically saying... Jack Grealish went down quicker than his brother did in the grave or something like that. And tweeted a picture of Jack Grealish's brother's gravestone. It's just so sinister. It's just like... It's a sewer it's social media dark. sometimes. It's yeah. so dark. For me to cheer him when he came off. And this is the thing I want to get in there that I have to say. I'm actually a little bit concerned. I said this, this response, to, oh, Grealish was so dignified. Why? Why does he have to be? It, so Grealish was more on trial for his behaviour than the Birmingham fans who cheered the guy on the mm. pitch because the guy who ran on the pitch for me, was merely a symptom. He's just like sort of, in the same way that Trump didn't create racism in America, right? Trump is part of a wider problem. This guy is part of the wider problem. And those fans have to be accountable. Like who is holding them to account for mm -hmm. their reaction, for yeah. their behavior? Well, the, yeah. There was also the, the guy in the, Man United, uh, the Arsenal Man United game as well, who kind of brushed past Smalling and went over to try and celebrate with the players. Now mm -hmm. that wasn't as 
serious, but it could have been. You know what I mean? He could have like he could have lamped Smalling or whatever. He could have been carrying anything. You never know. I mean, there's actually like pretty stringent checks at Arsenal now. I don't know what it's like at Birmingham, but um, but that's not, not the point. strict enough. That's not the point. You know, in terms of like what people are carrying or whatever. I think today Arsenal have already come out and announced that he's getting a lifetime ban from the Emirates. So Did you see the steward pushing Grealish after yes. Grealish scored? Yes. That is sinister because what that is says as well, that is the rot. Yeah. That is the rot setting in. When you set an example that it's okay to put hands on somebody, mm. right? Because there were three of these events. There was the obviously the Smalling incident, the one in Hip, uh, Rangers Hibernian. When people start feeling it's possible, mm. and I can, again compare it to kind of the Trumpian thing, when Trump started talking about this, you know, Trump started like tweeting all this rude stuff out. At first, it was like, oh, politicians don't do that. And now, so many other politicians are doing it mm. because the bar is being lowered all the time. Mm. And I think, you know, without sounding like an old granddad here, football has to draw a line and be like, no, like the pitch is a place of work. Yeah. And we're not going to laugh this off. Mm. We're not going to set a spurious example. Well, the onus is now on the FA to act. Um, proportionately and I think a proportionate response would be a heavy response yeah they've got to get points deducted I mm, think I agree has to be that because a lot of the time clubs get fined for stuff like this and no, that does nothing it does nothing I think points deduction are fine and also a couple of games behind closed doors. Yeah. The problem is that fans so often don't see how their behaviour can affect on-field stuff. Mm. If this guy who was getting cheered off then ends up being the guy who cost Birmingham City a load of points. Exactly. That- can I be brutal? You know what I do as well? Yeah. Can I be brutal? I do. Deduct points are fine and a restriction on away travel. I'd be that brutal. I'd actually, I would actually restrict away support travelling. Do you know I say that? Because that's where it hurts fans. They're the ones actually, they have leverage. Yeah. Away fans have leverage. They've got, so if you say to away fans, look, that behaviour by that bulk of supporters was despicable. Yeah. We're going to freeze or reduce your allocation. That, that guy, that guy won't be considered a hero for much longer. No, he won't. He won't. And there are decent, can I say this as well? There are obviously decent Birmingham fans horrified by that. Yeah who would maybe appreciate that leverage. In the, I can contrast it with Millwall. So Millwall had this terrible problem with race for a long time. Yeah. And the reason it got sorted out is because Millwall supporters that stood for really good progressive values, in my opinion, knuckled down and sorted that out. Mm. But they, I think you need, those fans within the club need help from outside. And yeah. as we saw with Millwall versus Everton quite recently, the problem will never go away completely. So you need to just manage it, right? Yeah, exactly. yeah, I think there's a problem with sections of every single fan base. Agreed. And yeah. the last thing people want to see is, you know, I mean, we're coming up to the 30th anniversary of Hillsborough very soon. That is a massive reminder of the horrible alternative of stands being open to pitch access. Well, that, that will obviously never happen happen again but there has to be some kind of middle ground well the thing do you know what i mean sorry to cut in but like you know we watch a lot of nba right there's people literally sitting a foot away from Mm. a player everyone's watched kirby enthusiasm right you've seen that episode where larry trips up shack (laughs) and gets court side seats at the lake as he stretches his legs out yeah i mean there was one guy in the miami heat game recently who jumped on grabbed the ball and took a tried to take a free throw and then ran off that was like the worst thing i've seen on a basketball court you know there are fans having ongoing conversations with players sometimes people don't want to spill their beer when they're sat on the court side you know they don't so i think it's just like you're at the game like what i don't understand what the thought process is running on a pitch right what do you think is going to happen you look like an idiot well unfortunately Ryan you're trying to analyse the mind of an idiot um, so you're not going to get very far I thought I'd be able to you know idiot recognise idiot (laughs) (laughs) the only reason I'm getting I'm getting slightly dramatic I'll sound slightly dramatic here but I'll say it anyway shall I put some music shall I back (laughs) (laughs) yeah add some music later the only reason I mention this is because I remember like looking years ago at these like chat rooms and trolls I remember thinking my god I hope these people never feel emboldened to actually act and every now and again when you get these like people 
committing acts of violence, you look back and previously there's a whole, you know, there's like an internet chat room where they've been in and they've been like talking about it for months. They've been egged on to do it. And I, I just wonder if anybody egged this guy on in the pub or whatever a few weeks before, a few months before. Mm. I just, I want to sort of, I want them to deconstruct this, not just go, he's a moron and shove him out of the game. I want mm. to actually break down the steps that enabled him. Mm. And I want to even like have a, I want, I'd love to hear a podcast from like Birmingham fans about the ones in the audience, you know, the ones in the crowd mm. who were like, I heard the cheering or I was part of it. And there were loads of us doing it. And what, what was motivating that? Yeah. Because we need to break this thing down, I think, before it goes any further. I just feel really sorry for Birmingham fans who just, are really against all this stuff. Yeah, of course. Because likewise, it's likewise. It, because it's so easy and quite sad to see people then using that as to like, all oh, right, Birmingham fans are like this, Birmingham exactly. fans are like this. And it's just not true. It's, it's like just... Cristiano Ronaldo at Juventus, right? Now people can then go, oh my goodness, Juve, and it becomes another tribal thing. And this is, I want to say this explicitly on this podcast, right? This isn't about bashing a particular fan base. This no is way. about a systemic problem in football. Right, and it, it could be United fans next week. It really worries me how blinkered a lot of football fans are. Yeah. And how much they bend in order to not criticise their club. Yeah. Right, yeah, and I think football tribalism as well has become a lot more intense, as you mentioned at the start of this segment, by Twitter, by social media as a whole. It's like, if you're not sympathetic to my club, then I don't want to hear from you. Right. Yeah. It's that mentality. And yeah, I think it's um I think it's a really dumb way to look at the game because football's such a great sport that could be appreciated on so many different levels. Um, but if you're taking such an introspective view on it, then Are you really enjoying football is my question. Yeah. If you can be there and not you know, you know, United we got beaten by Arsenal obviously and we got run around by PSG, but mm. I still enjoyed watching you know, it's painful to watch your team getting drilled, but yeah. you watch PSG at Old Trafford and some of that stuff was beautiful. But you know what? Like, you have two types of football fan, I think. Or there's probably more than two, but... <laughs> primarily. <laughs> yeah. You've got the people that enjoy watching the game as a sport and enjoying it for what it is on the field. And then you have guys that go to the game simply to... Have a fight. Basically, have yeah. Have Basically, more or less. When Marcel Desai was in Serie A, he said this, he said, and he came out and said this like 20 years ago, he said, fans come to the game, they've had a bad week and they take it out on the players. Yeah. And he got absolutely hammered for this 20 years ago. I remember reading that at the time going, no, that sounds nailed on. Mm. And we're seeing it now. People yeah. are literally using football as catharsis. And the thing that really scares me, and this circles around to the Raheem Sterling stuff and the, the targeting of certain players. We live in a society that is becoming more and more unequal, right? 20 years ago, it was much more affordable to go to certain games. Players are being, you know, more and more distant from fans, people are being priced out. And there's this weird thing happening in football where players have never been more close in terms of social media and Instagrams. Yeah. They've been easier to praise or insult a player, mm -hmm. but it's also never been harder to relate to a player financially because of the economic gap. So what you've got is this very dangerous cocktail where you've got this very visible vision of hate or elitism that you can that becomes the kind of lightning rod for discontent. Yeah. Mm. And but, people think it's okay because they they see the wealth of players and they think that that means it's open season for anything. Raheem Sterling was attacked in a car park. Yeah. yeah. In a car park. We don't talk about that enough. Yeah. yeah. In a place of that is terrifying actually that but, that happened. But like we mentioned on the last podcast when we were talking about Allardyce and like people like Allardyce don't help that situation because it all fuels the fire of the same thing. Just to remind people, what was... Players what of was, today, basically a soft he was saying. Yeah, yeah basically said, oldies. yeah, we spoke about in the last podcast about how Allardyce was saying that players nowadays are, are, are soft and they don't have a tough mentality like players like him or his generation did. Mm. Whereas we said actually on the podcast, it was like, well, I think it's the opposite. Mm. It's the complete opposite because if you mess up in a game, you're a meme 
30 seconds later right. and the whole world sees it and the whole world can criticize yeah. a young player or any player so actually i think that players have to be more mentally strong now and they're more mentally strong now than they've ever had to be yeah. right agree yeah and therefore they need to be protected and if we want football to be well some people might not want it to be a family pursuit but i'd quite like to see families in the stands more women at games are we going to see this when as long as things like this are happening it seems further away than ever you right. can have an amazing atmosphere at a game and also make the environment not intimidating for non-blokes basically yeah. you can have both you can have both yeah. you yeah. know it's just i don't know man we're, that's maybe that's why we're sitting here doing a podcast and not being paid <laughs> to make decisions yeah, hey true, maybe true, though true. although you know arsene wenger's allegedly gonna be uh infantino's advisor which really? is a weird decision. But maybe Arsenal bring a little you know, bit of really romance scary. to the to the I mean, top you're level. not a Game of Thrones fan, but that's basically like making him the hand of the king. Yeah, I have no idea what It's that the means. most doomed role. <laughs> basically, the role it's the role the role of an no, advisor no. in the excessively powerful but subtly crumbling kingdom is the worst job to have. So I really I really fear for Wenger, yeah. the hand of the king. Oh, actually on the Game of Thrones thing before Out we the frying pan into the fire. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Before we go for another break, I tried to start watching Game of Thrones last week and um I couldn't find a way to do it without paying a load of money that I we didn't really fancy playing. Watching Game of Thrones, I would just say if anyone doesn't watch it, is a bit like watching Atletico Madrid, but slightly less terrifying. <laughs> so hey, that's yeah. taken you a long time to get Atleti in the podcast. Do you know what? Put some respect on their name. <laughs> Put some respect on Atleti's name. I don't need to. You do it every week. <laughs> hey, we, we all love Atleti. We all will be on yeah. June 3rd. <laughs> oh, Ooh, cool. uh, let's have another break. Have another break. All right, before we move on to questions, the US women's national team right. are suing US soccer for like quality of pay, which I think is really, really interesting. And at the same yeah. time, Adidas have just agreed to pay the same win bonuses, haven't they, for women as for men? Yeah. yeah. So they weren't doing it before, um, but they're doing it now. But this is something I'd like to cover in a bit more detail. So I think it'd be good to speak to someone on another episode about that, because it's a really interesting story and it could be a real game changer. Yeah. Um, so I'd like to dedicate a bit of time to that. Another thing before we move on to questions, what do you guys think about Hummels, Boateng and Muller all of a sudden being cut from the Germany squad? Bizarrely executed. Executed Con being the word, yeah. Not not, <laughs> yeah. not not contacting them, it seems, and just announcing it. I think Jerome Boateng has had a very difficult season. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think his departure from the Germany team is 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 deserved. Mats Hummels slightly better but also showing signs of weakness. Thomas Muller, though, I mean, he spent a month on the bench for Bayern um, and then started against Gladbach last week and then again in the, the weekend just gone. He's got so many more miles in the tank. And I just think the way it was handled was disrespectful to three guys that have given so much, won the World Cup, key players of the World Cup squad. I don't really know what what, what the DFB and, and Lerf are playing at, to be honest. It's been a and bad year for the DFB. Yeah. Following on from the Ozil situation during and after the World Cup, and now this situation with these three, I think it speaks that they've got something very wrong going on upstairs They just seem there. to be like careering from one PR disaster to the next. If you're going to retire these three guys, then it needs to be done in a fitting way. Look how Lukas Podolski was sent off and Bastian yeah. Schweinsteiger um, in recent times. Those three players also deserve that kind of send-off if you're going to end their careers. But, you know, at least in two of the cases, I think it's pr it's premature. Even though there is a legitimate case that young blood needs to be brought in. But, I mean, that should have been done gradually over a longer period. And, yes, yeah, the way it's been handled is quite distasteful, I think. I think there's two things from my point of view. First of all, 
you don't have to say that they'll never play again to leave them out for a start. I think, you know, as players progress in their career and they age, I think they fully expect not to play as Just often. drop them. Exactly. But it means you can always recall them. <laughs> yeah. Um, and secondly, if they were going to make this massive brash decision now to to go for youth, they've done it a year too late yeah. because they ignored yeah. a really exciting crop of youngsters for the World Cup. Mm-hmm. And that massively backfired. Yeah. And also, if you're going to go down this road, I tell you what, I think Neuer is a lucky boy. I think Neuer is a very lucky boy. Yeah, absolutely. Because he's not been the best German goalkeeper for yeah. two years, I don't think. Yeah. And he was very lucky to start, I think, in the World Cup. He's still a great goalkeeper, don't get me wrong. But I think that it's just really confusing. I think there's a lot of stuff that's coming out but from the DFB in the last year that's just really confusing or not confusing, depending on which side you look at it. Yeah, but if you look at the way the, the players and the number of players that have been alienated by the DFB in the last year or so, that we they're, know they're, running, they're, yeah, they're running out of players to offend. Can I be really brutal about this? This reminds me, it's weird because we often look at African football teams and go, oh my God, they're so unprofessional when they go on strike. <laughs> and then we find out why they've been going on strike and we realise actually their issues are fundamentally the same as the European teams, which is that at some point, the officials have started to believe that they are actually the ones kicking the footballs. Exactly. Mm. And it is a vaguely, there's, va- there's almost a class thing going on here because you had it with Ireland where you had... The officials would sit in business class and the players would sit in economy. You had it in the World Cup in 2014 where the Ghana players went on strike because the richer players were like, the poor ones being treated badly. Nigerian teams are not being paid. Uh, I think the Nigeria had not been paid their win bonuses mm-hmm. for winning the African Cup of Nations the year before, right? All this stuff was going on. And we're seeing it now. The DFB, there are people in that organisation who believe that they kicked the balls that won Germany the World Cup because it is the only way you can explain this contempt and the only criticism I have for the players, right, is this. The players that got cut, and I'm not including Boateng in this, when you have an administration that is arrogant, the arrogance in the end comes for everyone. It's easy to start with the outliers like Ozil. Ozil was always a controversial and divisive figure. You know, forget even the race stuff. Ozil divided opinion before that. But it is very easy in a squad to allow, let's say, that the outlying members, even the less popular ones, to be picked off. And you think that's not going to come for you. And it's come for them. And the smartest man in all of this, the man with the greatest vision on and off the pitch in German football in the last 10 years is Philipp Lahm. Because that dude looked at that celebration and he was like, I'm done. Nothing's going to top this. <laughs> and, you know, God knows what dynamics he was aware of, right? Because that dude didn't take a board seat at Bayern. But that guy was like, this is the crest of the wave. I've come to the logical end of my time at the club, but, you know, at an international level. But I just look back and think to myself, how many of these problems that are now becoming revealed were there even while the team was successful, right? Because this is not how a successful team, a 2014 World Cup winning team that's been together for, what, eight years before that? This is not how they go out. Well, the thing that they had, I think that what what they did really, really poorly was how they managed the evolution of the squad post winning the World Cup so you lost Murtazaka and Lam straight yep. after the World Cup right those two guys I think uh, were were two guys that people would really listen to in that dressing room absolutely and massively respected I don't think people maybe give outside of Germany maybe understand how influential Per Murtazaka is in Germany his post-match interview after the Algeria game for example was something that was really it really made waves Amazing, over here yeah, and yeah. wasn't and it needed to be said and I think it kind of woke a few people up about how like people talk about the squad and all you do is that you have people like Boateng, Hummels, Muller, 
you transition those guys into being the guys that are now taking on that role. If you sit them down, mm. I mean, we, this might have happened, you never know. But if you sit them down and be like, right, guys, you might not play as much, but we need you still and you will play. We need you to help transition. The people respond to that, I think, in probably more of a positive way than, than, than people think because you're adding a level, of, uh, like another level of responsibility to it. Mm. It was just really poor. It was just such, such a poor handling. And I'm saying poor Dortmund because as Jonathan Harding was saying, Jonathan Harding is a fantastic writer on German football at John Bloggs on Twitter, was saying, this is an incredible motivation for Bayern now. And you see Joshua Kimmich come out. And this is the scary thing for Löw now because Joshua Kimmich, who is really part of, um, of Löw's plans going forward, has come out and criticised Love for mm. his decision. Mm. And that's, that's really bad because you're almost, I mean, Love made this choice without realising what the consequences would be. You've upset people who you're trying to build your new, your new team around. Unless it was enforced on him from above. Interesting. Yeah, well, but if, even way, if it is though, then that's poor on Love in my opinion, because that guy, to sell that guy is going to be expensive to sack, mm. right? right? So he's in a massively powerful position there. And he needs to take a stand. He's in a poor position, though. I mean, from a, strictly from a contract point of view, he signed a massive contract extension. So if they're going to fire him, it's going to cost them a lot of money. So he, I think he should be using that as leverage if it's come down from above. Now, this is pure speculation, but if it's come down from above and he's not really backed his players there, then I think that's really poor on his part. Mm. Can know? I say this as well? Imagine, imagine like Love wants to take a big club job now. You look at a guy that's arriving in a dressing room who's hung out to dry <laughs> the greatest generation <laughs> of, of German players in a long time. I mean, who wants to... Mm. They don't understand what damage they've done. I, I, I think, think this think is so one either. of these things you look at where I, I honestly believe that Thomas Muller will outlast Joachim Love in the national team. It's going to become like a cause celebre. They're going to go on a run by and now. Poor Dortmund. They're going to go on a run by and they're going to be annihilating teams. Yeah. Muller will get back into goal-scoring form, playmaking yeah. form. This is actually the shot in the arm that maybe yeah. he needs. I can absolutely see that happening. Right. And it's already started to happen. Yeah. Muller yeah. has shown in the last couple of weeks how classy of a player he is. And I wouldn't be surprised if Bayern go on to win the league by some distance um, with Muller playing a key role in that. That 2020 German Euro side led by Jurgen Klopp. is yeah. going to be one big party, I think. Oh my goodness. Can I just say, Jadon Sancho, we haven't mentioned first. you, but you're always in our thoughts. Sancho Corner, you're always in our thoughts and our hearts. Shout, shout out to Jaden. Uh, questions before we go. Yeah. Our good friend, Mash St. Paddy. Ah, oh, the great Mash St. Paddy. Says, on the bonus podcast, you discussed the PSG United game and its drama, but that aside, where do the esteemed podcast host, that's very kind, where do we stand on the complexities of VAR in general? He says, I was a huge fan of it at the World Cup, but I've been left questioning how the refs are trained on it after the United game. This is opening a big can of worms. Yeah. I think we need to do a VAR podcast. Can we do that, actually? Just yeah. one As long on. as we can I review think... it before it goes out. Yeah. Shall we? Oh, that's clever. <laughs> so I did that. Oh, man, that took me. I think I was on. I think my stream was a little bit delayed there. It took me ages to get what you were talking that's about. That's why I get the big bucks, people. Yeah. <laughs> Without <laughs> wanting to, I know I read the question out, but can we save that, actually, and do a, do a thing about VAR? We need to come back to it, I think. I think I think it deserves a full segment. So let's so yeah. One sorry, thing I'll Marshall, say, but we one thing I'll say as well, just before we move on and treat this for give give Var the full treatment it deserves. I was watching Real Valladolid against Real Madrid and Valladolid, I think lost four one, Real won four one. And there were two disallowed goals in the yeah. first half through VIR. People are still learning. Yeah. Like People, I think officials are still learning how to treat this thing and handle this thing. So yeah. we're in transition still. Anyway. Um, short answer. Like it in theory, not so sure in practice. Yeah. But uh, yeah, we'll come back to that, I yeah. think. Eric Renko says, you've mentioned Sancho, De Litt, De Jong and Vinicius several times as special young players. But who are, in your opinion, other young players under the age of 20 in Europe 
who could be regarded as potential new stars, Mbappe excluded. Uh, that's a really good one. Can I meet me, the guy, the me, 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 the guy at Leipzig, the centre back? Is it uh, Kanate? Yes. Oh my goodness. Yeah. This guy. Really commanding. I first back. saw him, I thought he was a winger. He was like yeah. beating people in the final third, crossing in. He's a centre back. He's yeah. sick. He's Dude's so like good. Six he's four. very, very good. He and is, well, yeah, I mean, he's 19 years old, six oh, foot four. Oh, so that's 192 <laughs> centimetres for, Absolute the, for metric lot. And you know, Leipzig have one of the best defensive records in the Bundesliga this season. And the fact that he's been nearly ever present, I don't think is a coincidence. Mm. Heavily linked with Arsenal in January. Beautiful I would like to, I'm, I'm wondering whether maybe that was a little, that was why uh, they sent out Smith Rowe on loan. Maybe it's a little, we'll give you this. Mm. You know who I'm excited by as well? We saw a glimpse of him in the last couple of United games. Um, Mason Greenwood. Mm. He oh, he's wonderful. Is, yeah, I mean, disturbingly born in 2001 oh my goodness <laughs> oh, late 2001 I think my career um, was already done in 2001 yeah. <laughs> there's a touch of Van Persie about him he's so so poised got a fantastic finish great eye for goal left footed as well um, and I'd really like to see more of him under Solskjaer I don't another one I don't think he's under 21 or he might be 21 Luka Jovic from, from Eintracht Frankfurt He's young Serbian talent, absolutely fantastic. Scored five goals in one game earlier this season against Fortuna Dusseldorf, I think. And yeah, he's, I think, um, the future of Serbian football. I've got two shouts. First one is um, James Horncastle mentioned him last week on the podcast, Nicola Zaniolo mm-hmm. at Roma, mm-hmm. um, 19, uh, midfielder, six foot three. Yeah. Well, he's listed as six foot three. It might be, might not be quite six foot three. But um, yeah, like James said, held up as the poster boy for this next generation of Italian players coming through. The other one, I I thought about this, and this is based off, uh, mentioned him a couple of times, my friend Bert, shout out to Bert, Ajax fan. We chat a little bit about Ajax and there's a kid who you think born in 2001 is disturbing. <laughs> Nasi Unovar, born in 2003. No. What? So he's only 15, he's coming through the Ajax Youth Academy. They think he's going to be really, really, really special. Yeah. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised to see him break into the Ajax team in the next couple of years. Man United actually tried to buy him wow. two years ago, I think. When he, so when he was 13. It's um, just so, so good to see the Ajax Academy fully functioning again. Yeah. Well, I mean, I kind of mentioned this on the, the Ong piece that, that went up on the site last week about how you're only really now seeing the effects of the Cruyff takeover as it were you know like nine years ago nine ten yeah. years ago it's yeah. nine years ago I think Ajax now have again reinvented their youth system in terms of I saw I think it was Miguel Delaney wrote a thing about that in terms of pure finances the Ajax result against Real Madrid was one of the most unprecedented in terms of gaps in resources right like operating budgets so Ajax have to compete on a different level yeah which is a shame but it's a reality and you know I think and in some ways I wouldn't want it any other way like, oh, I just, I, yeah. I just love that Ajax are that club. Yeah. Uh, um. Okay. One from Ryu. <laughs> Ryu Verkel. Yes. Photographer extraordinaire. He's come straight in with final Liverpool. Who will win on Wednesday? If you have to bet your weekly wage. Some people will be listening to this podcast after the event. Um. But I'm gonna stick my neck out and say Bayern. I think they're going into the game in great, great form. Don't know how many goals they've scored in the last two games, but it's a lot. Liverpool kind of misfiring a little bit. Um, and I just think Bayern are starting to fill their boots in the Kovac mould. I think Bayern as well. And I say this because Bayern are angrier 
than I've seen him in a very long time. And I don't say that because Liverpool aren't, of course they're a great side. They came back against Burnley. They're a fine side. They destroyed Watford. I'm just saying that Bayern in Munich right now, unfortunately, Love has put the fire under them and they're going to come into that game with pure grudge and be absolutely brutal. I think it'll be narrow, but I think they'll shade it. And they're going to be so encouraged from that first leg performance as well. Uh, it was a real deflating result for Liverpool. Nil-nil, right. I mean, Bayern don't have any away goals, so it could be worse. But yeah, Liverpool really needed to win that 2-0. Oh, I don't know. I'm on, I, I don't know. Bayern absolutely when they smashed Wolfsburg at the weekend. But it's mm. only Wolfsburg. Hey, Wolfsburg yeah. pushing for a Champions League spot, right? <laughs> yeah, they're in the top six. Play Liverpool's, I'm trying to play Liverpool's advocate here. <laughs> uh, I'm going to, if I had to bet my weekly wage, I think. A weekly wage though? What a capitalist mentality. Yeah, this God is the problem I have with it. Let's deconstruct the question, actually, your weekly wage. I mean, this is extraordinary. <laughs> Why is he making us put our necks out financially in these yeah. difficult economic times? Not, not encouraging gambling. <laughs> yeah. I'm not, yeah, we, we, actually, we're not, this is not a bet cast. All right, yeah. so Ryan's on the fence. Um, I'm going back um, on the fence, actually. I'm going to... Uh, uh, Bayern. Bayern. Two. Bayern. Bayern? I think. Okay. Oh, no. Oh, so that's no. three of us going for Bayern. See what Ryu's done? Ryu's created Discord. We're not a betting podcast. We've never actually... We've, we've By default, we've become a betting podcast. I, you can't see this podcast, listeners, but I'm rubbing my head because my I'm head horrified. hurts now. <laughs> I'm horrified because I have tipped Liverpool for the league and I stand by that. But I think the Champions League is maybe going to be a step too far. That's it. Liverpool for the Premier League, but not for the Champions League. Let's get out of here. Okay, Bonus podcast this week, gents? Uh, hopefully. We'll see. Yeah. So everyone can rub in at how bad our prediction was for the Champions League. Yeah, absolutely. Um, some admin, lots of stuff went up last week. Moose had a piece, I had a piece, two Rabona selects. Yeah. Frankie Jong with some John Clemmer. And I think my favourite so far, the Leaky Martins pylon one. That was good. So much. 100 caps for Leaky Martins last week and uh, 40th anniversary of Pylon's first gig. So I thought it was nice, nice little Beautiful symmetry. Account. If you listen on iTunes, please rate and review. You can find us on social media, all handles at Robonamag. Check us out. See you next week. Or this week. <laughs> <laughs>Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.